Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. It feels like you're living in a snow globe. You just have this endless ocean around you. I could never do that. We've all said it at least once. There are tasks, competitions and adventures many of us see as unfathomable. We marvel at these accomplishments in books like the Guinness World Records, and we view the people who achieved them as godlike. But we're all much more capable than we think. Very few of us have truly tested the limits of our fortitude. We just need a nudge, and perhaps today's episode will give you that push. Welcome back to Behind the Spine. This is our fourth series. A large portion of this new series will be dedicated to following the journey of adventurer and extreme sports enthusiast Kaz Lander, who at this very moment is busy training for an epic row, a 2,000-mile trip around the coastline of Great Britain. If you're struggling to put that into perspective, it's about as far as the distance between the UK and Turkey. If you walked an easy path for 12 hours a day, it would take about two months to get there. But for most people, it would take more like four to six months. So basically, it's a very long way. And this particular journey is being carried out on the unpredictable ocean. This conversation was recorded at the end of last year, before Kaz headed off to do her winter training in South Africa. We'll catch up with her soon to see how things are progressing. But this episode is a precursor for what's to come. Chapter 1. Whatever the weather. This isn't Kaz's first rodeo. She's ventured over the treacherous high seas before. During her first excursion, she found herself in a competition rowing across the Pacific Ocean with two friends, Meg and Elle which is a huge task considering she'd never really heard of ocean rowing before taking the plunge. Going from a mindset of, who would be crazy enough to do that, to, this sounds like it's right up my street, Kaz became fascinated by the idea and ended up recruiting a team for the event in 2018. By the way, you might think this row would be less insane than the one she's about to go on, since it was her first ocean row. But that couldn't be further from the truth. We rode between Monterey in California and Hawaii. So that's 2,400 miles. Uh, It took us 62 days of rowing. I think at the end we'd worked out that we'd each individually done about a million oar strokes during that time. We rode three hours on, three hours off, 24 hours a day, daytime, nighttime, lovely sunshine, hurricanes. Yeah, so it's it's big, but when you're rowing it, you don't really you don't really look at the whole distance. I guess it's just that constant. You just you put an oar in and you pull, and then you put the oar back in and you pull, and it's those little tiny steps that kind of all build up really quickly. And before you know it, you're halfway, and then three quarters of the way. I talk a lot to writers about baby steps and about starting small. And a good one is always, and we will always do it in the, the sort of the first session of of a new year, which is. If you write 300 words every day for the rest of this year, then by the end of the year, you will have a 90,000 plus word novel of, you know, say 300 pages. So you cannot break down a challenge like that in any other way. It's like running a marathon. You can't think about the fact that you're going to be out there for 
five, six hours. It's about getting to the next mile marker or the next water point. But when there's three of you in a boat and it's not like they closed the Pacific off (laughs) and said, let's have lovely calm weather for the next 60 something, something days, whatever they threw at you in terms of mother nature, you had to, you just had to deal with it. Didn't you? How much did you talk about what you might face in terms of the adversity or bad weather or whatever it might be? Uh, Well, I guess before we set off, we'd spoken a lot about uh, the risks and the biggest fear in all of this is always having to get rescued and not making it to Hawaii. So, you know, everyone thinks once you leave California, then you're obviously going to make it to Hawaii. But there's a huge number of crews that don't. I mean, there was five boats in the race that I did and two boats got rescued in the first two weeks. So it's never kind of a given that even though you've done all the preparation and you've got to the start line, you can have an entirely different experience to someone else in exactly the same race as you. And if you're just in a slightly different bit of ocean, you can have different bits of weather. So we've done a lot of work around trying to minimise all the risks, but there are the ones that you can't control. So Mother Nature, other boats, that was a big risk for us as well, coming out in the ocean. So, yeah, I guess we spoke to a lot of people beforehand and people would talk to us about, you know, 30-foot waves and hurricanes. And I don't think you can really... I certainly hadn't really comprehended what a 30 foot wave really looks like until you're out in that situation, out in that scenario. So I guess we had done a lot of kind of visualization and, you know, we had all these safety procedures in place. So we knew like, this is what we would make sure when we would check each other to make sure we were always clipped on. And if the weather got bad, we'd make sure we had our safety equipment out with us and we knew where everything was so we could grab it. And if there was a risk in big weather of capsizing, we had all the drills, we practiced all the drills and dry land. So we were very well prepared. But yeah, I mean, going across, we had a hurricane come through about halfway through the race. Yeah, probably about 27 days into the race. We just got a call from our weather router saying, girls, I didn't want to panic you, but there is a hurricane that has formed and it's going to pass pretty much directly where you are. So we actually had to limit, so we were normally rowing about 40, 50 miles a day and we limited it. So we were only allowed to row a maximum 20 miles a day. And so we were basically just trying to stay as far behind and let the hurricane pass in front of us. So I think things like that, you can't, people talk to you about them on land and they, most people, you know, say to you, you want to see these most incredible sunrises and sunsets and, and they talk about all the really amazing bits, but I think people forget as well, a lot of the the scary bits, or they, they put those bits kind of to the back of their mind. So when they're talking to you, you don't you don't really get the full understanding or impression about it. But yeah, I mean, I'd also say the first week was probably the most testing week. We set off in bad weather. There was a 24-hour weather window that we basically had before we knew there was another storm coming in. And if we didn't leave then, it was going to be another two weeks until we could get out of Monterey, which then put us two weeks closer to hurricane season depending on how long it took us to Hawaii so the the race safety officer made the call and said we're going to set you guys off now and you've just got to try and get as far away from land as you can in that first 24 hours so the first week was um I think we really experienced everything we ended up on power anchor because mandatory power anchor because the weather got so bad um that the race basically called around and said you have to stop rowing for safety reasons we're going to put you all on power anchor for two days, I let this weather system pass over and then you can start again. And I think almost it was the best thing that happened. It was a bit like a baptism of fire, but it was probably the best scenario we could have faced because 
we still had that comfort that we knew that we were quite close to land and if anything went wrong that we were still in a place where we could be quite easily rescued but also by the time we got out kind of halfway and the hurricane came past we felt like we were so used to all these conditions and we'd faced them all previously that actually we were really unfazed by the bigger waves or the bigger weather and yeah it's weird now because now I look back on it now and I think oh it wasn't a problem you know 30 foot waves to me now just seem oh it was a 30 foot wave it's the same as a same as a wave when you go surfing or whatever but actually I think I've kind of just I've put it in a box in my head and made it less scary than it probably was so I think there's a huge amount of sense in that though (laughs) I give you an example from my own albeit considerably less adventurous sporting (laughs) um, experience. Running a marathon, there is a moment at the start where you have nerves inevitably uh, because you know that what you're about to do is going to, at some point, hopefully not too often, it's going to hurt and it's going to challenge you physically and emotionally. But then the race starts and you get into quite quickly uh, a routine your training memory kicks in and actually there is a slight enjoyment of the monotony and for quite a long time for the next couple of hours it's monotonous yet interesting at the same time and and, and it's not until it gets darker you know perhaps three quarters of the way through that the, the mood changes did you experience the same thing did it become actually, we are now governed by the structure of three hours on, three hours off. So the routine and the monotony starts to kick in. Did you notice that? Yeah, absolutely. So for those 62 days, your life just revolves around a three hour block. And within that three hour block, we also we had it split really nicely into three separate hours as well. So although we were rowing for three hours, every hour, because we had an uneven number of people in the boat, and we didn't have any, we had to steer manually using our foot. So someone always had to be on the bow seat. Every hour, someone would either get on the oars or get off the oars. So we'd have two people on, then one person on, then two people on. So we had a rolling seat. So I guess we lived our life in these three-hour blocks. But within that three-hour block, there was three very separate hours. So I'd spend an hour sat on the front seat. And then the next hour, I'd be rowing by myself. So I'd move back to the bow seat. And then the third hour, Elle would come out to start her three-hour shift and I'd row with her. So yeah, everything became, I wouldn't say there was definitely days when it was kind of monotonous and we used to laugh and call them groundhog days because it would just be gray. And it felt the best way I can describe it is it feels like you're living in a snow globe. You just have this endless ocean around you, but you feel very much, there's just this circle of ocean around you that feels like a snow globe and the weather systems will kind of come and rise over the horizon and then appear over you and then disappear off behind you. You get used to it very, very quickly. Um, that was one of the things that really fascinated me when I was out there, which which was kind of how easy it was to move from a, a setting, living on land, living in a house, social media, cars, everything, you know, if you want to go anywhere, to actually how easy I found it to get on a boat, have no internet, very little contact with anyone outside of the two girls I was rowing with, and actually settle and feel very at home and very comfortable and I had a really good time rowing. Yeah, and I found it fascinating that how you, the your body and mind can make that switch kind of so seamlessly that actually it just becomes the new norm. And then it was difficult actually when we got into Hawaii, moving back into what you'd kind of call everyday life. And suddenly everything was so, like the colours and the smells and people, it was very, very overwhelming. And you kind of long to be back on that little boat kind of 
a way where you could kind of pick what you did. And it was, it was a very, it's a very simple, simple life when you're out there, which sounds silly really, because you're in other, other terms, it's a very difficult and kind of bit of a brutal time as well. But yeah, you definitely get governed by whatever your shift. Some people do two hours on, two hours off. We did three hours on, three hours off. But yeah, you, you live your life in those shifts. I mean, we would lose track whether it was morning, night, what time it was. You just knew that, oh, this is my shift three. I'm going to go to sleep for three hours and it'll be my shift four. And then I'll wake back up. Chapter two, the world records. The stakes are high when you're fighting Mother Nature, yet for Kaz, it seems her fears shifted during her time on the boat, with the question of, what happens when it's all over, when I have to return to normality, ringing loudly in her ears? It's interesting how quickly we as humans can adapt to a new normal, to come to terms with something so far out of our comfort zone. It's a fascinating tool to use in character development. What parts of your character's personality will stick around through major change? And what bits will be forever altered? It's important to note that Kaz didn't just finish the row. Oh no, she went one step further. I mentioned the Guinness Book of World Records earlier, a place where Kaz's achievements will now be forever remembered. We set two world records. So the first was um, the first crew of three, male or female, to row the Mid-Pacific and then the second was the youngest crew of three to row any of the world's oceans. So I guess we were in a very, very fortunate position, which is quite rare in adventuring these days. We knew that it didn't matter how long it took us to get there. As long as we made it there, we would get the record for the first crew of three to row the Pacific. So saying that, it was part of a race. So we had kind of two parts to it. So we wanted to, we wanted to do well in the race um, and, and we finished second in the race then we wanted to make sure that we, we got there safely. And but most of all, we, we wanted to have a good time. So we agreed before we left, you know, that we had some times that we were aiming towards. And we said, you know, that that's the, the number of days that we are going to aim for and that we'd like to try and do it in. But actually what's more important to us is that the three of us get on whilst we're out there. And we don't want to, if someone's having a rubbish time, we don't want to, you know, push and push. So they end up hating it and we get off in Hawaii and then never speak to each other again. We knew coming across as long as we made it to Hawaii, we would get a world record, which is, yeah, that's a, it's an entirely different ball game. I think when you're, you're chasing a record, it's tough ocean rowing because you can be the most prepared crew and, you know, be the fittest and the strongest and the best mentally prepared. And if the weather is against you and you get a couple of days or a hurricane comes through, it can completely wipe out any chance you get of of setting a time so it's one of those sports where it's you want to do all the prep but you have to be so aware and so prepared that actually there's all these external factors that can kind of pop up at any point during the row that can completely derail everything it's almost as if all of that hard work and we, we, we will talk about that another time but all of that hard work all that does is get you to the start line you're then reliant on a huge amount of luck to see you through and you have to have both because the endeavour on its own, as you say, if you, if you meet the wrong weather patterns, well, you're screwed anyway. You have to have that mindset going in that we have done all we possibly can to get ourselves into a position to start this race. Now we need a big slice of luck. That was part of your discussions and your training, wasn't it? Yeah, completely. And I think we were we were very aware of that. I mean, 
on paper, our background, the three of us were, we'd never flat water rowed. We had all previously done, I'd probably describe us all three of us as um, adventure athletes. So we'd all done previous expeditions, multi-day expeditions. Megan's done a lot of climbing mountains, she's climbed a lot of big mountains. Elle had done solo cycling trips across continents. I'd done a lot of kind of multi-day paddle expeditions, sailing, swimming expeditions. So the three of us, I think we all brought these unique skills to the boat, all from slightly different perspectives as well. But yeah, and I think that was the beauty of our team and why we gelled so well and why over time we actually, I think at the beginning of the race, there was there was a couple of teams that had people that had rode oceans before. There was um, a team that were was full of very good flat water rowers. And then there was us. And there was always a bit of a, everyone would kind of laugh and joke a little bit at the beginning saying, well, we know he's going to come in fifth place. And we'd laugh kind of thinking, yeah, no, we're pretty sure we probably will. But we kind of had this underlying, you know, we used to just laugh along and nod. But I think between the three of us, we thought, actually, I think everyone's underestimating us a little bit just because we don't tick those initial boxes, you know, of being very good flat water rowers or um, having, you know, having experience of having rowed an ocean before, et cetera. So, and I think every, I think everyone was quite surprised actually when we, when other crews got rescued and the three of us were still absolutely fine and powering on. And I think that's the beauty of ocean rowing as well, is that I genuinely believe that anyone in the world could, could row an ocean, you know, just like I think anyone has the ability inside them to run a marathon or to do anything like that. A lot of people just have this barrier that they put up and they say, oh, there's no way I could do that. You know, I don't like running or I don't know how to row or, but I genuinely believe, you know, it's the same that no one says, oh, I can't run a hundred meters because they can't run as fast as Usain Bolt runs a hundred meters. People run a hundred meters and just say, oh, I can run a hundred meters, but I'm not that fast. But in events like this, people kind of always put up these barriers and say, you know, oh, I, I can't do that or I don't fit into these boxes. And so therefore I'm not an ocean rower or, I'd have to be really good at flat water rowing before I got into an ocean. I mean, Elle joined our crew very, very last minute. We had a a whole saga around um, crew members and getting the right crew members for the team. And we got Elle on board about six weeks before the row started. She lived in Australia. Me and Meg were both in the UK. Our boat was in the UK. So the first time Elle ever even saw the boat or got on the boat was when we got to California. So she, we did all of our training. She did all of her training. Um, me and Meg had spent a lot of time out on the boat in the UK, but Elle did all of her training in two or three weeks in Entree before leaving. Chapter three, a new adventure. What Kaz has done feels like an epic bucket list moment, done once, never to be repeated. I mean, it sounds terrifying. The jeopardy levels are so high. But some people are not content with a once-in-a-lifetime moment. After proving that anyone can do it, Kaz is now going to prove that anyone can do it twice. Success isn't something you can complete. It's something to be worked at constantly. We only find out who we really are during our most challenging endeavours. As I mentioned at the start, this new adventure will see Kaz rowing non-stop and unsupported for just over 2,000 miles along the coastline of Great Britain, starting and finishing from Tower Bridge in London. She's teaming up with her partner, Andre, and the rules are very much the same as her previous row. 
the general concept of it is exactly the same. So we won't receive any outside help. We will have to carry all of our food, all of our provisions um, on the boat with us. Uh, if there's any bad weather, we will have to anchor off the coast. We won't go into any marinas. You know, we won't decide that we want a pint of beer and go into a marina and go to the local pub for a dinner and then jump back on the boat and keep rowing. So, yeah, the basic concepts of it are exactly the same as the Pacific row, but it's also very different being a circumnavigation of an island close to land rather than going from point to point. There's a lot of different elements to it. So, for example, once you're out in an ocean, you have weather systems that come through, but you can predict them quite early on and track where they're going and generally get yourself into a better position. Weather close to land is a lot more unpredictable. You get a lot of localised weather systems. You get a lot of kind of messy weather from where you've got weather from the ocean meeting meeting land. Um, we're going to have to deal with tides, which obviously the UK has got some of the biggest tidal ranges in the world. And all of this, so our ocean rowing boat, you know, we don't have a sail, we don't have an engine. So if we've got tide and wind against us, we literally cannot row. We will have to anchor up and wait for the conditions to change before we can go. So it's a lot more, um, it's very similar in terms of the general concept of an ocean row. But I think for me, this one's going to be a much bigger mental challenge. So rowing an ocean, you have the isolation, which is mentally very demanding and difficult. I actually found that quite easy, I think, on on the row across. I didn't really struggle with that so much. But the bit that I did actually, the last couple of days when I could see Hawaii was the first time that when I was rowing across that boat, I kept thinking, oh, come on, let's row faster. Let's go. Let's go. We're nearly there. And around GB, we're going to have that for two, three months of constantly being able to see land, but not touch land. So I think it's going to be an entirely different challenge. It's going to be, I think mentally, it'll be much tougher on us this will be Andre's first ocean row so I think that dynamic as well will be I think it'll be great but also be interesting because there'll be lots of things that he'll be experiencing for the first time ocean rowing that I might have experienced before so kind of making sure that we're on the same page I guess and understanding each other and, and I think also you know rowing with your partner you're probably a bit more open to having arguments with them or saying things to them that I probably wouldn't I think I'd probably be more comfortable, you know, saying, I think you need to work harder or why haven't you done this? Why are we doing this? Whereas in a team with Megan L, you were always quite thoughtful of what you were saying and how that might affect the like the team dynamics. And so I think there's going to be lots and lots of different challenges around this one. But I think also that's what makes it so exciting and why I also wanted to take this this challenge on because it's the same but different. It will be interesting for... Andre, because there is a real possibility that your experience will have an impact on his experience this time round. And I think it's always interesting. We always have to, I think you have to, in life, balance your experience with allowing somebody to have, you know, their own experience for the very first time. And it would be very easy for me, for example, to rob somebody of the joy of them writing their first book by imposing you know a whole bunch of rules and, and I always say you know you need to write without fear and just let all that go and it will be fascinating to sort of keep up with with you over the the winter period through your through your training but I think it sounds 
I just it sounds exhausting the whole, the whole <laughs> thing, you know it, it really does but at first glance you might say oh, actually you're gonna you're gonna sail around the island okay well doesn't sound that far but as you just said it's about the same length yeah. as, as rowing from Monterey to Hawaii you're trying to do two things in addition to prepare for this you're trying to raise money for your chosen charity but you're also trying to make sure that you have got proper funding for the equipment i'm assuming that you're looking for sponsorship and support because this doesn't sound like it's 20 pounds to buy a, a rowing boat you, you need the top of the range kit it has to pass certain safety tests so what how are you looking to structure um investment in this project yeah so we are looking for corporate sponsors to come on board and partner with us uh, we have a load of different packages that we can offer from donations of £100 all the way up to our headline sponsor, which is at £10,000. And then depending on the value of the partnership, we've got a whole lot of different things we can offer. So for example, our bigger sponsors, we've, we will pretty much be a floating billboard around Great Britain. Um, so we'll have business logos all over the boat. Our headline sponsor will be able to rename the expedition using their company name or whatever they want to call it. And then for our smaller sponsors, we've got things like getting the logo on the oars. So any video footage we come back, they'll get a lot of um, exposure through those kind of things. And then um, obviously social media is going to be a, a massive one. And the beauty of being so close to land for the majority of our row is that we're going to be able to provide so much more social media than a normal ocean row. So yes, we're working with a company at the moment to try and make sure that we've always got access to be able to send videos and Instagram posts and blog posts back even when we're either too far away from land so kind of I guess um in between when we head up in between England and Ireland um or around Scotland it's notorious for terrible signal on land let alone kind of at sea so yeah we've got lots of different packages uh, for corporate sponsors and then we've also got our charity which is the Royal Marsden Cancer Charity which is the um leading cancer hospital in the UK they do a lot of research into all types of cancer all around the world, um, lots of revolutionary trials, medical trials that they uh, provide. So we're raising money for them and we have a donation page and then all money from there will just go directly to charity. That's great. We'll put all of those links out in the show notes for you, Kaz. At the moment, everything is ahead of you and you have time. But very quickly, you won't have anywhere near the amount of time yeah. that you've got at the moment. As you are right now where's your head in terms of this whole you know adventure does it seem like we've got all the time in the world and, and we'll we'll get there and you've got a plan and all of that kind of stuff does it is is it an exciting time is it an anxious time is it all of the above <laughs> yeah i'd probably say it's all of the above um i think the beauty of this time round compared to the previous row is that i made all the mistakes in the lead up to the Pacific row. Um, so I learned a lot about what to do, what not to do, where we need to focus our effort. And also particularly from a training perspective, actually, you know, what the right kind of training is for us to be doing and making sure we've got lots of things ticked. So I think, yeah, I think at the moment, I'd probably just say I'm, I'm excited and probably a little bit more apprehensive about the actual row itself. Having done it before, you do know, or you know all the risks and you know all of the, the bad bits and you know what before I was completely oblivious but now I now I know everything or I probably still don't know everything but I know 95% of what I'm going to need to know to to row around GB 
and I think that I think I also feel that added pressure because people look at the Pacific and say, well, you rode the Pacific, you set two world records, this is going to be easy for you. And it's trying to explain to people, you know, that there's rowing around GB that, I mean, there's only ever been 10 crews that have ever successfully made it around GB in the history of ocean rowing, which is far smaller than, I mean, the Atlantic, I think, has had over 500 crews. They have 50 crews a year row across the Atlantic Ocean. So the scale of what we're doing, um, I think people have that impression that because you've done it before, it's therefore now going to be a lot easier for you. But I think actually I feel more pressure this time around because if something doesn't go right and it's because we haven't thought about it, then I'll feel very responsible for not having thought about that scenario and how we could stop anything from going wrong. So I'm definitely being much more meticulous this time about, you know, kind of looking at everything and looking at all the equipment on the boat and, yeah, so I'm excited, but I'm probably, I think I'll probably be a lot more nervous setting off in June than I was when we rode the Pacific. I'm always fascinated by people's answer to this next question uh, because it's such a deeply personal answer. And I'll give you my own answer to, to this question in terms of, you know, me personally. But why are you doing this, Kaz? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's probably one that I haven't actually got to the bottom of myself over all these years I I spend a lot of time it's it's the question that everyone always asks you when you tell them you're doing something like this the first question they ask is why and I always give probably a bit of a fluffy answer you know that I absolutely loved being out in the Pacific I I feel at home I'm on the water there's kind of something inside me that I always just want to keep pushing and kind of seeing seeing how far I can get um but I don't know if I've if I've managed to put my finger on exactly exactly what, but I think it probably, I worked in elite sport and as a sports scientist, well, I still do, but I worked for seven years with the Olympic and Paralympic teams. And I think that had a, a massive influence on the why I do things, because I think I was, you become immersed in that environment of excellence, of doesn't matter how good you are there, you can always be better. I worked, for a couple of years specifically in a job where we were looking at marginal gains and that might have been you know trying to find someone two hundredths of a second faster which would be the difference between a gold medal and a silver medal and you'd spend hours and hours trying to identify how you could make someone two hundredths of a second faster which you can't comprehend how quick two hundredths of a second is so i think that has probably rubbed off and had a major influence in my life yeah i think there's probably just this underlying interest in how far can I push myself and wanting to know where is my breaking point I don't I've done a couple of ultra marathons and at the time I'd probably say I'd reached my breaking point at times in those but looking back on it I think no I, I didn't reach my breaking point at that point it was just a a bad hour or a difficult hour um so yeah I think um I mean some of it's probably a bit of a, self, a selfish reason of just I love being out on the water and I guess, you know, a lot of people feel very comfortable feet on solid ground and being in a house, whereas I feel alive when I'm out in the water, I'm in the outdoors, I'm doing something like that. Well, we will try and catch up with you and Andre at some point over in South Africa, and then we'll come and see you at your training base when you get back. But for now, Paz, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. We will see you very soon. Thank you for having me. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Kaz Lander for today's opening episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? 
When you've set your sights on accomplishing something, don't look at where you are now and the end goal. Take baby steps. Mark minor waypoints and victories. Set a goal and be happy with getting halfway there. Whether it's extreme sporting event or writing your first book, the enormity of the task can be daunting. So break it down. Adversity doesn't have to be a negative thing. Consider the enjoyment your characters might draw from struggles and hardship, especially if your story relies on regularly putting them in sticky situations, which, to be honest, it should. Facing your fears reduces the power they have over you. The beast is less frightening once it's been tamed. The shark is scarier when it's just the music. That's true of everything, including writing. You just need to start. Look for the marginal gains, those small steps you can take to constantly improve your offering as a writer, even if the progress feels insignificant. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Hetwood. And as I said earlier, we're going to continue following Kaz's journey, unpacking her answer to the why. Why is she doing this? What does it really mean to her? And for all of us who can't comprehend an adventure like this, how on earth do you prepare? What we are capable of as human beings is often astonishing and our own abilities go far beyond our own reckoning and that's why we're following Kaz's journey. So we can take inspiration and see what's possible if we just push ourselves that little bit harder. Let me know what lesson you've taken away from this week's episode by sending an email to info at behindthespine.co.uk. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Goodbye for now, stay safe, and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.